0: Talk about how awful that is. I'm bringing it up though to make this point to you. Uh, As a congregation, it is natural for us, given this transition, to have little patience for theological and doctrinal conflict. And the reason is that theological conflict centers on the meaning of words. We don't have a lot of patience for that because we've been taught that, that words aren't really reliable that words are ways that people express power relationships. And what you really need to do is sort of dig under the words like a like a pig might dig under a fence, you know, and get down under these words and, and there you'll find the goods, the roots or freedom or whatever it is. But the words are used in such a way that uh, you can't really depend upon them having one meaning, They really have an infinite number of meanings and the person writing them had an infinite number of things that they were saying. And so uh, they're not really reliable. Uh, What you have to do is you have to engage in a sort of uh, semantic voodoo and, 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 and plumb the depths of this and get behind it. And so we approach scripture on the one hand believing in the plenary verbal inspiration of scripture, which is our heritage as Protestants. And certainly as Reformed Protestants and as Evangelicals, we've all been taught that the Bible, every word is true. But then we've been conditioned to always be suspicious of words and to want to get under them and to look at the motivation of the person that was writing them and to understand that they're very pliable, okay? So then you come to a text of Scripture that's narrative, history, all right? And it feels good because what it's really doing is not claiming that particular words have particular meanings, but it's just carrying sort of a history. And so you don't have to be real rigid about particular words and narrative because you know generally nobody's going to argue that when he says he resisted him to his face, that that means he resisted him and that means to his face, all right? And face doesn't mean feet, right? So we're sort of okay with that. But then you move out of the narrative, out of the history into the doctrine proper and everybody begins to yawn for two reasons. Number one, because words begin to be very intense. And number two, because I'm much more careful in how I speak about them. I'm, I'm dotting my I's and crossing my T's because I don't want to contradict those words in a very clear, logical argument. And so what we'll have to do now is we're going to have to enter into questions like this. When Paul uses the word justify, justified, what does the word justified mean? Uh, You know, that doesn't feel good, does it? When Paul uses the word law, what law is he talking about? When he uses the word faith, what is faith? What is saving faith? So I'm warning you. You're going to have a lot of trouble being patient over the next few weeks, because we're going to enter into a theological argument. The narrative is done. We're now coming into the argument. Now it's very interesting how Paul deals with finishing up the history and going into the argument. If you look at our text, Galatians chapter two, before I read the verses we're going to focus on, I want you to see the, the, the larger theme, and notice how he brings to a conclusion the history. Notice that he says in chapter 2, verse 14, you can tell you're still in history then because he says this. He says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, this this is Peter, Peter and Cephas are the same person, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So what's going on here? Well, the Apostle Paul is describing the conflict in Antioch. And he's entering back into the conflict, and he's writing here a record of what happened in the conflict. You all know that. And and specifically here, he's writing into the record the actual words he said to the Apostle Peter in front of everyone in the conflict in where? In Antioch. So over here in the conflict in Galatians, the Galatian churches, He's, he's recording the history of the conflict over here in Antioch and exactly what he said to Peter in the conflict in Antioch. And so as we enter into our text, that's the context. But look what happens. He says, I said to Cephas in the presence of all. And then you have quote marks. See that? Now the quote marks aren't there in the Greek. The people that translate it into English, adopting our conventions, have to decide how they're going to handle that, right? So they decide they're going to put quote marks in there, right? And we are all okay with that here because I said two and then a statement. And we say, yeah, put a quote mark in there. But now watch what happens. I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew, all right, now, just take your eyes and, and don't read, but flow through the text, okay? And keep going. Remember, they also don't have verses and they also don't have chapters in, in the original Greek, all right? Go through the end of the chapter, and then notice how the next chapter begins. Now, again, the translators put that chapter separation in there. But why do you think they put it in? What are the words there at the beginning of the next chapter? Huh? Okay, so think, think, words. What, what point am I making? Well, where in the previous few verses did you see a transition from recording the history of the conflict in Antioch to entering the present-day conflict in Galatians? Nowhere. You see what I'm saying? That he starts with history and he morphs. You know those pictures where you have like a lion made into a baby's face and you have all these, this infinite progression? You know, a computer, Photoshop can do this, right? It morphs from Antioch directly into Galatians such that you end—you start with a quotation, but you end with a declaration to the people you're writing to, you foolish Galatians. Okay, so I want you to be aware that what we're studying is a transition point between history and present-day argument, and we really don't know at what point we are, whether he's made the full transition to talking to the Galatians or whether the text we're studying is still a quotation of what he said to Peter and the other people in the church in Antioch. It doesn't matter. The point is it's the same battle, and the point is the history is important for the past, the history is important for the present, and you and I today, 2,000 years later, the history is important for the future. It's the same argument, now we enter into it. And I want us just this week to read verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2. And there we read this. It says, We are Jews by nature, and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Now this is God's word and it is eternally true. It's interesting how difficult it is to see, as I said, where the history stops and where the argument begins, this transition point. But we are dealing with an historical record of the actual words spoken by Paul to Peter and of the words he spoke to the Galatians. Somewhere in the verses 15 to 21, we make the transition, we don't know where. But what we see is the central issue under debate is this question of justification or this statement of justification by faith alone. The Galatian church was not primarily dealing with men and women who denied the faith and turned away from the living God to idols. This would be much more the problem today in the church today. Uh, It is clear after 20 years of ministry that people today have almost no fear of God and certainly no fear of the bride of Christ. People are not taught to respect and to understand that the church has the power of the keys, that Jesus Christ saw fit to give to the leaders of the church the power of the keys, that whatever they bound on earth would be bound in heaven, whatever they loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven. A direct quote of Christ speaking to the leaders of the church, people today, it's inconsequential to them. We still follow the old patterns of making the promises that people for centuries have made when they join churches. We still theoretically elect elders to lead us, to be authorities over us, still theoretically sit under the preaching of the Word. But today, people aren't really concerned about the church. People aren't concerned uh, about the uh, coming to the Lord's table and uh, not discerning the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in it. And so today, people don't tend to uh, separate themselves from the Lord Jesus Christ uh, by very sophisticated arguments and slight nuances and, and, and changes of emphases, people today just cast it off. You know, It's like, who needs it? You know? I mean, chill out, dudes. I mean, you know, wh- what is your issue? I mean, you know, I'm out of there. And that's how they treat the church. Well, back in the time of Galatians... That was not how people treated the church. People didn't just come alive in Christ and, and then despise the body of Christ and leave. People were in the church and were sleeping with their father's wife. All right? In the church. People were in the church and demanding that if the Gentiles were going to sit with them at dinner and hang out with them and be fully accepted, they were going to have to be circumcised. All right, And so things got worked out with the body staying together. They didn't just go and choose another place and, and start hanging out with a different group. They stayed together and they had conflict. And what we see here is that the Galatian church wasn't primarily dealing with men and women who denied the faith and turned away from the living God to idols, people who were apostates renouncing Jesus Christ after associating with him and his church for a time. Rather, the conflict was over the nature of salvation, and those on both sides of that conflict had not renounced the church and their Lord, at least as they sought. In fact, to a man, they undoubtedly believed that their words and actions in this controversy were the very words and actions which would safeguard Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And equally on the other side, the apostle Paul was convinced of the same that he was the true champion of Jesus Christ, holding to the true doctrine of salvation through which the souls in the church would be kept safe for heaven. So on both sides, we have people who are absolutely convinced that what they're doing is going to protect the church and to protect the souls in the church. That what they're doing is faithful to Jesus Christ. Now, it is true that the Apostle Peter had to do some fancy juggling in order to remember the vision he had of the animals being let down from heaven and then choose not to associate with the Gentiles after the Jews came up from Jerusalem. All right, You remember that sermon. Nevertheless, nobody was arguing that this was just a matter of personal preference. What they were all arguing is that the true nature of salvation was at stake. When people argued that you had, the Gentiles had to be circumcised to be accepted in the church... They weren't just saying, because that's what I'd like. They were saying, what? Well, because all through the centuries, the Jews, on the eighth day, have circumcised their little boys. And this is foundational to the way that God has marked us. This is who we are as God's covenant people. You can't just throw out those centuries and this most basic act of our covenant community. You can't do that. I'll admit that the Holy Spirit is clearly working among you Gentiles, but not to the degree that you're just going to despise everything God's been doing up until now. You see? Okay? Now, I want you to enter into this, and I am going to be absolutely relentless on this theme, because your soul's health and protection depend upon it. Do not think for a moment that you're sympathetic to engaging this argument because, after all, it's the book of Galatians and we all honor the Scriptures and so the book of Galatians is this argument and so this argument is worth having. The only reason you have any patience for this argument whatsoever is that you have this native inclination as an evangelical to honor Scripture and you know Galatians is a book of the Bible and you know that the Apostle Paul wrote it in such a way that he seemed to think it mattered. And so you're very willing to say, well, this must be important. But let me tell you something. If you didn't have the book of Galatians and it hadn't been dealt with, and in this church we had the Apostle David Canfield not eating with the Gentiles once I came up from Wheaton. okay, And I resisted him to his face and said that the entire Gospel hinged upon the way he was eating dinner and with whom? every single one of you, well, maybe not some of you, but that's only because you're foolish, every single one of you would look at me and would say, you know, occasionally Tim does lack a sense of proportion. (laughs) Okay? And you would say this was a prime candidate. I would go into elders' meetings, and the elders would be in my face talking about the fact that I was dividing the church over a matter that was a peccadillo. Do you understand this? So often, you people look at me and you say, oh, there goes Tim again. And you're always so confident of your judgments of where what I'm saying is my own personal peccadilloes and my tendency to be overly rigid about certain things and where maybe I have a point. And you don't seem to have any hesitation in coming to your judgments. And you don't come to your judgments by arguing Scripture. If you did, I'd encourage you. But rather, you have this sort of native sense that your own inclinations are above reproach and that you know your own heart well. And so when you come to your judgments, you say, well, any idiot can see that this is a case of Tim being overly rigid. And we all know that Tim tends to be that way. Now, okay, let's forget Tim for a second. Let's go back to the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine anybody having any hesitation in saying the Apostle Paul tended to be overly rigid at times? I mean, this guy has defined rigidity. This man, I continue to tell you, would be the first one thrown out of any theological training if they did with him what they did with me, which is to give me the MMPI when I matriculate at seminary and look at the results and make a decision whether or not I'm a good candidate for pastoral ministry. Minnesota multifaceted personality inventory. Questions such as, someone is trying to kill me. And other questions that I will not mention in mixed company, but quite twist it. How would Paul answer that? Sometimes I hear God speaking to me. I'm, I'm quoting direct questions from this, from this test. Uh, now, I don't remember that this is a question, but you know that the psychologist would want to know whether you sometimes have delusions of grandeur and think of, that the entire history of the church has depended upon you winning an argument with another man in your church. I mean, come on, guys, enter into it. Don't just say, well, it's Galatians and so Paul's right. If you had been there and heard Paul making the arguments, how would you have responded? And I know how you would have responded. You would have responded by saying, here goes Paul again. You know, doesn't he ever get it? You know, God is pleased with us. You know, God's not this rigid, uptight, sort of male, sort of chauvinist, sort of dude. You know? Paul is an instigator of needless controversies. You know, really, all of us are pulling in the same direction. You know, doesn't the Bible say that, um, you know, if he's not against me, he's for me, you know? And Peter's clearly for Jesus, you know? Here goes Paul again. We're all pulling in the same direction direction. And to the degree that they disagreed with one another, this was more the result of their, what? Spiritual immaturity. Always wanting to be right and not allowing the Holy Spirit to be the final arbiter of the boundaries of the church. I mean, can't you just hear what you would say? You know, these two immature men, isn't it enough that God's made them apostles, so they have to want to be right, too? You know? Okay, Are all of you feeling this? I mean, I hope you are. Because don't think for a minute that if you had been there, you would have been compassionate and in agreement with and uh, thankful and grateful for the Apostle Paul. No, American culture hates this kind of thing. It divides. It says somebody's wrong. Nobody minds saying somebody's right. We'd like to say everybody's right. But when you say somebody's wrong and, and a particular person, an apostle, and Peter... No, no, no. Uh Uh-uh. We're not on board. Now, what's the case? The Apostle Paul has no delusions concerning what is at stake, and although he most certainly would have been aware of how others were viewing him, taking such a radically inflexible stand on this issue. He didn't waste any time licking his wounds, but he pressed ahead and made his case. And let me say, this is how you have to handle the current culture of the United States. You've got to handle it by... Recognizing exactly what people are thinking of you and going ahead and making the case if the Holy Spirit requires you to make it. And not spend time wishing that you could be viewed in a more positive light by the people listening. All that does is that silences you. And so the Apostle Paul is man enough to engage the argument directly, knowing everybody thinks he has a serious lack of balance. Okay? Now what's the case? He says this, starting with verse 15. What does he do? He casts his lot in with the Judaizers. In other words, he takes the very people he's opposing and he says, "Hey, I'm one of you." All right? He says, "We, not you, we are Jews by nature and not sinners, sinners. from among the Gentiles." In other words, what he's saying is, "Okay, you refer to them as goyim, sinners, dirty ones, all right? Fine." I'm a Jew. I'm not a goyim. So he casts his lot in with these who are saying that the people must be circumcised. He says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. So he calls himself a Jew by nature and not what he terms a Gentile sinner. He's acknowledging what? The past superiority of the Jews and the inferiority of the Gentiles. And he is identifying himself as being among the superiors and not the inferiors. When you say somebody is a sinner, you're not saying something that's commendatory. And if we go to another one of his letters, we see him develop this same theme, but a little bit more fully. What does he mean by this statement that he's a Jew and not a sinner, not a Gentile by nature, that he's a Jew? Well, in Ephesians 2, we read this. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, were at that time, what? Separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, Something was at stake. This was not a small thing. This was the condition of the Gentiles outside of Christ. They were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This was their condition. So quite the opposite from the Gentiles... Prior to the cross of Jesus Christ, it would be correct to think of the Jews as what? As spiritual royalty, as biblical Brahmins or blue bloods. They had it all. They were the golden boys in salvation history. In Romans 9, we see the Apostle Paul speaking similarly of the wonderful blessings of being born a Jew, a member of God's covenant community. But here also, he shows this blessing not in order to attribute right standing with God judicially to that blessing, to that membership, but to show that good though it was, that membership was entirely insufficient to do the work of redemption. That only Jesus Christ could do the work by which any man could be justified before God. Now I want you to open up to Romans 9. I want us to quickly go through this section. So again, you see this theme comes up again and again and again in the books that Paul writes in the New Testament. In Romans 9, beginning with verse 3, he's in this context of what is the nature of being a Jew and of being a Gentile, and how is God working in this new church, the Christian church, under the blood of Christ. He says, for I could wish, verse 3, that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Now, who are my brethren? Well, he says, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Who are his kinsmen according to the flesh? Well, they're the ones that had their flesh cut through circumcision. So in other words, he's saying, I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my fellow Jews, my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are what? And there it is, Israelites. To whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God bless it forever. Amen. For I could wish... That I myself were accursed for their sake. Alright? But, verse six, it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they now watch this. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now, when you read this, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. What do you think of? Well, you should think of Galatians. But what else do you think of? You should think of Jesus, right? How many times did Jesus have a conflict with the Pharisees and the other muckety-muck Jews where the issue was whether or not they were sons of Abraham, whether they had Moses and Abraham as their father, whether God was their father. You remember that? They were always trying to say that they were blood relations without being blood relations. Now, are are you following me on that? We think the blood of Christ. They thought the blood of circumcision and ultimately the blood of whom? The blood of Abraham. I'm a blood descendant. All right? They were constantly denying that circumcision was an act of faith and that circumcision only had significance in that the one who had circumcision applied to him was by God's grace called from before the foundation of the earth and was marked as a part of the promise. They always wanted to say that baptism saved their children. But, of course, it wasn't baptism. It was circumcision. The exact same thing we go through today. People want to mark their children with baptism and say, well, they're a blood descendant. We've marked them with baptism. They're a blood descendant. we marked them with circumcision. And so they would say to Jesus, you know, we're not sinners, (laughs) you know. We have Abraham as our father. We have God as our father. And Jesus' response was to say, you may not trade on your blood relationship because without the promise it means nothing. It is a spiritual truth. It is not a physical truth. Now, does that mean that they were uh, hopelessly uh, ignorant in bothering to mark their children with circumcision? Does that mean today that people should not mark their children and not be marked as adult converts with baptism? No. But it does mean that no one is saved by baptism. Just as no one was saved by circumcision. These things point. That doesn't mean pointing isn't important, but they point to a spiritual reality. And Paul opens this up here as he goes on. He says, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. And immediately you think what? That terribly tragic scene of Ishmael. Okay, But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And you've thought, Ishmael, and now you see that very clearly the Holy Spirit is telling you, you're right, Ishmael's not there. Who's there? Isaac is there. Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for, through the tw- for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Now, think about this. They're counting on blood relationships to save them. And so they say to the Gentiles, you have to be circumcised because it's blood relations that are important, and circumcision is a a cutting of the skin that leads to blood, by which you're engrafted into the blood relationship of descendants of Abraham. So what does Paul do? Paul goes to the descendants of Abraham, and he shows that both of them are descendants. You have Ishmael, and you have Isaac, and one is cast off, and the other is the child of promise. And then in case you didn't get it with Abraham, he goes to Isaac. And he shows that while still in the womb, God had chosen one and despised the other, hated the other together and, and of course you're hearing this and you're thinking well that's not fair he said to mark him with circumcision he said that he would be a god to them and to their children and now he's not keeping his promise and again paul's a master because the holy spirit is leading him and he knows exactly what you're thinking and he says what what does he say at that point he says what then shall we say there is no injustice with god Is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, what is this? Anybody here who's had a good father or a good mother knows what this is. Because I said so. That's why. No other justification needed. Because God is God. That's it. God is God. And what God does is, by definition, fair. every parent should be laughing now. You remember that story I've told you in the past about the pastor that decided his children needed to have a lesson in God's fairness. And so the next business trip, he came home, he brought a gift for only one of the children. And he gave it to that one child, and then he turned to the other children, and he said, I want you to know that as we understand it, God is not fair. Now, you might think that that's a twisted father, but... Maybe he wasn't. Now, remember, this was not me. This was some man who really knows what he's doing. I brought gifts for all my children, even for my grandchildren. So then he goes on and he says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, excuse me, verse 16, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now, are you all tracking how perfectly this meshes with the book of Galatians, with the book of Ephesians, with everything that is said in the New Testament? It is not our marking with baptism or circumcision. It's not blood relationships. We cannot trade on salvation because God is the initiator. Now, doesn't it make sense that the Creator would be the initiator? Huh? Who initiates salvation? Do we? You know, you might, some of you know where I'm headed, and you think, oh no, Tim, not not this morning. Please, not this morning. <laughs> but you know, this is a reason why when someone wanted to ask our son Joseph out on a date, we said no. Now think about that. We want the men to image the father. You see? We don't want to just throw everything up in the air and let it come down any way it wants. We want to maintain this divine, beautiful picture of Christ, what? Taking initiative with the bride. And everybody says, well, come on, chill out, Tim. I mean, here you go again. You know? Certainly if the Apostle Paul were here, he'd have some sense of perspective and wouldn't always be trying to bring sexuality into every sermon. All right. I mean, you get the point. The whole flow of the argument depends upon an argument having to do with initiative. Because only insofar as the initiative of the bridegroom is protected with the bride do you have salvation by grace through faith and not by works. I mean, do you understand this? This entire argument has to do with whether we can do something that will merit the salvation of God. It may be blood relationship and lineage. It may be circumcision. It may be baptism. Okay, And it may be God has done everything He can do and the only thing He can't do is He cannot go forward in a Billy Graham crusade. That's what He's left you to do. You see, it's the exact same issue. The Roman Catholic Church teaches this. They teach a doctrine called congruent merit. Now, if something's congruent with something else, what does it mean? It means that they sort of come together in a way of synchronicity and sort of mutual admiration and sort of, you know, like when you're on a boat and the porpoise is, you know... You know, they come on and the boat gives them speed and they go whoop, you know, and they jump up in the air and then whoop, you know, that's congruent merit. You know, the boat has its forward thrust and then God comes along and whoop, and He, he takes what you've done and He adds to it and it's, it's beautiful. This is the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine. Okay? It is called congruent merit. It is that you do what you can do without His grace and then He adds His grace to it in such a way that it is congruent merit and you then merit more of His grace in such a way that then He flows into you His grace in such a way that then you have growing inside of you love for God. And as that love for God inside of you, that infused grace grows, you will become worthy of heaven. And it might not be completed when you die, and then you'll go to purgatory. And... Interestingly enough, there are some saints who are so great, starting with our Lord, but going on to Mary and going on to a whole phalanx of them all through history, who have done things so extraordinary without the grace of God that they have added to the merit of the church in such a way that the church is able to dispense that merit for certain... oh, payments. You know? And, and 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 be sympathetic. This is this is not a crass uh, merchandising. We're talking about the merit, the spiritual merit of salvation here. And so, you know, don't judge us harshly, but you can understand Bernard of Clairvaux. What a godly man! Have you ever read his commentary on Song of Song? I mean, and 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 Mary. Think of Mary under the cross. Think of how her heart went out to her son on the cross, and. Don't you realize that Mary had more than enough goodness to get herself into heaven and she has so much goodness that to this day you can still pray to her. And 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 she will go to her son because she has such, such superfluity of merit. Of course, what does the Bible talk about? The Bible talks about superfluity of naughtiness in the book of James. But the Roman Catholic Church teaches superfluity of merit to these people. And amazingly enough, because the Bible says that God has given to the church's leaders the power of the keys, all right. and since we have this superfluity of merit, all right, then the church can dispense this merit for certain payments. you know. So that if you'll give money to Rome or to a certain religious order, that religious order will then not just take the merit that the Pope has the keys over throughout history, but also their own merit because there are some people that are very religious and spend their time in monasteries and nunneries and do more than they're required either. And so they can take some of their religious works and apply it to your account in such a way that your mother and your grandmother and your great-great-grandmother can get out of purgatory more quickly. Now, let me tell you something. This is precisely the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, This is their doctrine. It has been their doctrine. It was the doctrine that they clearly confirmed in the Council of Trent. And it is the doctrine that Mel Gibson believes in. Does this mean that these people have no understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ and of his suffering? No. Does this mean that they have no sense that... They might be able to sing the hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I claim. No, they could sing the hymn, all right? But deep down inside, they know that God has commanded that we are to love Him. And uh, uh, I believe it's William of Ockham, a medieval uh, scholastic, who said that as you think of the love of a man for a maiden and that God has placed this love in his heart such that he is able to have it, how can you not believe that God has given the ability to that same man to love God because God has commanded him to love God? And so how can God command something that the man is incapable of doing? If he can love a maiden, he can love God. Okay? It sounds reasonable. Remember my philosophy professor set up this whole system of ethics and said the first rule of any system of ethics that can be just is that the person who's commanded to keep the system of ethics has to be able to keep that system of ethics. He has to be able to do what he's told to do. All right? So it's reasonable. A scholastic would come up with that. All right? But what does the Bible say? The Bible says what? By the works of the law... No man shall be justified. So the Roman Catholic Church has an answer for that. When it says the law, it doesn't really mean the law. What it means is the ceremonial law. It's not talking about judicial law. It's not talking about moral law. It's not talking about the Ten Commandments. After all, the Ten Commandments come out of the character of God. They're a reflection of his attributes and his perfections. And so, certainly, the Bible isn't saying that by keeping God's moral law, not committing adultery, not lying, not stealing, not envying, remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy, not giving ourselves to idolatry, not taking the name of the Lord our God in vain Certainly, Paul is not here saying that we will not be saved by keeping that moral law that is written because of the character of God who made us. And so, they say that when Paul says by the works of the law, no man is justified, that it's only the ceremonial law. And we can all agree with that. The sheep came down from heaven, had clean and unclean animals. It's very clear. And here in the book of Galatians, you would be hard-hearted indeed to think that circumcision is necessary for salvation. I mean, there are some things Galatians has to say. And certainly this issue of circumcision is one of those things it has to say, and circumcision is actually a part of the ceremonial law. So what Paul's really saying here is we don't need any longer to be cut through circumcision to be saved because the ceremonial law is done with. But don't you think that the judicial law, and particularly the moral law, don't you think they're done with? Let me tell you, if you're justified, you're going to be justified because prior to the grace of God, you reach... And then God surfs off of your reaching and begins to infuse you with a desire and a love for Him. And out of that love comes a love for the neighbor. And and if you are faithful, a faithful Catholic, a good Catholic, by the time you die, you're going to be in a spot where you might not have to spend any time in purgatory. In fact, you might be one of the great saints who has a superfluity of merit. And then we'll get rich off you. But, of course, they never say the final thing. But they'll do it, okay? And you see, what you have is clomped on to the work of Christ, the work of man. Do you, do you understand this? And, and they can say, well, we don't need the work of circumcision. But the Ten Commandments, we need to finagle with them a little bit because we can't have the Second Commandment. We, we'll just make one and then to ten will be two, you know. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think that Martin Luther, reading the book of Galatians and writing a commentary on it, might have bad things to say about the Roman Catholic Church? Okay, I mean, can you see it? Now, second, do you think that Luther, having bad things to say about the Roman Catholic Church, is again one of these men in history that's not fully in possession of equanimity? You know, he's a man that tends to be imbalanced and to see a necessity of division where other more mature believers would not see a necessity. Do you know that's what most evangelicals think about Martin Luther? When they read his writing, they are scandalized with the intensity with which he tromps on the Roman Catholic Church's selling of merit. Do you know that most Reformed pastors think that Luther was really a a fairly serious sinner in the way he made his case? I mean, we're glad he made his case, because we're happy for the Reformation. But it would have been so much better if Luther had had a sense of proportion. And really, any time people say that about Martin Luther and John Calvin, they're really saying it about the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul isn't making the most polite arguments in the book of Galatians. Hmm? If they want to cut, why don't they cut it all off? Okay, it's not polite. I'd say again, let them be damned. Damn them, damn them, damn them. I mean, it's hyperbolic, you know. Maybe for a theater that's needed, but not for a, not for a book that churches are going to read for centuries to come. If you look at Romans 9, you will see that it says this. I'm going to skip down to verse 21. Does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And the Jews immediately would say, well, yes, that's what we're saying. We're saying that the Jews are the sacred use and that the Gentiles are the common use. And then he says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called... And again, the Jews are totally there, aren't they? Because they are the people of the book. They are the people of God. And then he says, Not from among Jews only, but also from, what? Among Gentiles. As he says also, so now the Apostle Paul is saying, and look, the prophets predicted this, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. In other words, not just one prophet. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Again, what do we say to people who deny that the Jews have to come to the Messiah to be saved? Those who think that because they are Jews, they will be saved. What do we say to them? We say right here in Romans, it is the remnant that will be saved. And the one thing you can say about remnant is it's not the totality. Okay, For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. Even the righteousness which is by faith but Israel... Pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. You see? How much patience does God have for our works? You know what the Bible says? The Bible said God resists the proud. And so it says, They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. People all through history, starting in Antioch, starting in Jerusalem, starting at the very beginning, we as human beings have been so twisted and so perverted and so desperate for self-esteem that we have always tried to. to to control God, to control salvation, and to add to the work of Jesus Christ. This is who we are. Even if we obey every single commandment that's ever been given, the ceremonial, the judicial, and the moral, if we do everything at the end, we will still be clawing and scraping for some self-justification as we stand before the throne of God. And God is pleased to blow to smithereens everything we think will impress him. And the only one he's pleased by is his son. (laughs) And when you have a son, you'll understand that just slightly more. And he says in chapter 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. We don't just cast off the Jews. We don't persecute them. But we also don't just give them a free ride because they have bloodlines. He says, My heart's desire my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them. That they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Who can ever read Kain Potok's books and not see the truth of this statement? They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the message of the book of Galatians written more systematically calling in the history of Abraham and his children, of Isaac and his children, calling in the message of the prophet Hosea, calling in the message of the prophet Isaiah, multiple places, that God is not a respecter of persons, that any of us who think that we merit anything good from God, anything, that any of us that like to believe in congruent merit, that any of us that like to believe that the church can dispense uh, super, superfluous uh, additional good things that great saints in the past have done, and, and for a certain fee. That any of us that think that uh, if we haven't finished the work here in this life, then we can go to purgatory and get it done. Any of us who want to add anything to the completed work of Christ, any of us that want that work applied to us in any way bound in with works that we do, whether those works are circumcision, whether those works are uh, a growing love for God that He's pleased to recognize and add to, all right, whether those works are God has done everything He can do through His Son. The only thing He can't do is He cannot choose. He cannot accept. Himself in your heart. In other words, you must choose Jesus Christ. You must believe in your heart. You must accept. Whoa! (laughs) Someday that was going to (laughs) happen. You must accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Alright? You see how that is a work. And the Bible says what about accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? It says that that is a gift. Do you see? From the very beginning to the very end, you are only saved by the work of God. By him seeing you, setting his affection upon you, calling you, doing the work of regeneration. By him sanctifying you and someday, by faith, we believe that he will glorify us. That in heaven, sin will not be. Not one bit of that is our works. And if you have faith in the completed work of Christ, you only have it because He gave it to you. And if you think you can add to it, you're flying in the face of every single word of Scripture. You're flying in the face of the character of God who says He resists the proud. You're just like the Jews. And you're just like the Roman Catholics. And you're just like the Arminians. All of whom think that there has to be something that we contribute to this mess. You know, there has to be some some little part of it that's ours, so that we can then what? Fasten on that part that's ours and say, "I did my part." Now he has to do his. You see, it's always not about us. It's it's about us controlling him. We'll pick this up again next week. But I want to ask you, what do you think you need to add? Do you think that you need to add sexual purity and no more thoughts of lust in your mind? And once you get to that point, then you'll have security that you're indeed regenerate. Do you think that you have to add deeds of compassion, faithfulness to your parents, forgiveness of your husband? Do you think that you have to add proper reformed Protestant doctrine? What do you have to add to the work of Christ in order to be certain that you're saved? You can't have it both ways. Next week, we're going to all confess this together, but let me end by reading from the Heidelberg Catechism. There we read, the question is this, how are you righteous before God? And listen to the answer. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, in spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God, And have not kept any one of them, and that I am still ever prone to all that is evil. Nevertheless, God, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, grants me the benefits of the perfect expiation of Christ. Imputing, not infusing, that's the Roman Catholic doctrine, but imputing to me his righteousness and holiness as if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful. Having fulfilled myself all the obedience which Christ has carried out for me, if only I accept such favor with a trusting heart. Let us pray. Father,